The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 9, 1-23. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does, not, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but rather we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such, any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting." For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Welcome to Sacred City Church. Uh, My name is Justin, and I'm the pastor here. Yeah, let some of that beautiful sunshine in. What great weather we've had. Um, uh, One quick announcement for all the members of Sacred City Church. We do have a family meeting right after the service here. We're going to tear everything down. Should be right about, probably right about 
maybe a little bit before 12 o'clock. So right here in this room, family meeting after service. And uh, I think that's it for us. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. We're going to jump in. God, we, we pray to you this morning. We ask for your blessing. We ask for you to um, help me preach your word, that you would help us understand your word, that this um, was given to us by divine inspiration. This was given to us uh, to be pro- profitable to us, to profit us, to help us, to encourage us, to um, train us in righteousness and godliness. So I ask that you would help me preach it, help us understand it, help it do what it's meant to do in us and through us. And Father, would you speak clearly through your text this morning? Would you use me, a broken man, a sinner? Uh, would you use me to proclaim your perfect uh, word of God? I ask that you would do all these things for, for your name's sake, for your people's joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome to Sacred City. We preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians now, um, a book that, uh, it's basically a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he planted uh, about two years prior. So two years before, he planted this church. Uh, You can read about that in the book of Acts. And then he moves on to this uh, city of Ephesus, and he hears some kind of nagging reports, some bad reports about this church that's going on, some crazy stuff that's going on in this church in Corinth, and so he's writing a corrective letter to them. So really, um, if you have this idea of the church as being the shiny, clean, glossy um, building where everybody that has it all together comes to gather, um, well, that's not a clear depiction of a church. Um, This Corinthian church was very jacked up, so we affectionately titled this 1 Corinthians following Jesus in a jacked up church. And that's exactly what Corinthians was. That's exactly what, I'm going to say it, that's exactly what Sacred City is in many ways. Um, We are uh, bent because I'm bent, sorry to tell you that. And also you are bent as well. We are um, broken and we are fallible and we are fallen and we need um, correction. We need God to change the way that we think. And uh, that's what this whole letter is about. And today it's going to be, it's, gonna, it's kind of a challenging text. So we're going we're gonna to get into it this morning. But uh, I'm going to have to have a, I'm gonna, by way of a long introduction, okay? I have to do a long introduction to build up where we're going to, for, for us to understand what's happening in this text. Now, as I was thinking about it, I just kept coming back over and over and over to this. Do you know how, how miraculous, we don't use that word too often, Do you know how miraculous it is that this room is full of Christians? Now, I hope I didn't scare you there. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, I do not assume that everyone in this room is a Christian. But many of us are, and still, that is miraculous. Now, for some of you, you might be thinking, what do you mean? How is being a Christian miraculous? The funny thing is, if you don't already know the answer to that question, then you are either not a Christian or you're missing out on a key that can unlock your freedom in Christ. A key that will open the door to unspeakable joy, life-changing, life-altering power, and a freedom in this life that can be found nowhere else. But here's the hinge point. If If you see being a Christian 
as just a good decision that you made one day, right? One day, you kind of heard this message about Jesus. You heard the message of the gospel. You heard heaven or hell? Jesus or the devil? Hmm, well, I haven't met too many pleasant Satanists lately, so I guess I got two options. I'll choose the guy with the beard, right? And hey, the guy with the beard and the dress is a good guy, right? Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was kind. He was strong in the, in the face of oppression. He cared deeply for the poor and the marginalized. There's no doubt that he was a dominant figure in the first century. He drew large, large crowds and really amazed people with his wisdom and his authoritative teaching style. So when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you're met with an amazing example of how to live your life with love for others at the center. See, Jesus was a great moral example for the world. So if you come to faith like that, you wage your options, right? Jesus, you know, Buddha, he's a little obese, right? Muhammad, he's a little violent. Jesus, I like that dude. I could do without the dress, but hey, let's go with Jesus, the guy who dies for his friends. And for some of us, maybe you grew up in a Christian home, and you might not ever remember a day in your life that you didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins. And if that's you, I praise God for you. I pray that's the story of my children. But sometimes our coming to faith in Jesus stories have a way of beguiling us. We look back at them and we think, yep, I just made the decision. I just decided, just pulled myself up by my bootstraps and said one day, I'm done with this lifestyle. I'm going to live a different way. I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to get my stuff together. We just kind of pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. And a lot of times in the moment, that is exactly what it feels like and kind of what it looks like from the outside. But God gave us the Bible. He gave us the Holy Scriptures to help us understand how it is that people actually come to believe in him and come to trust in Jesus to cleanse them from all their sins. And if we don't go to the Bible to learn what God has done before we ever heard the gospel, God had done a lot of stuff before we ever were even around we don't understand that, we will never experience that unspeakable joy that I was talking about, that life-changing power and freedom that comes through our new relationship with Christ. See, the Bible teaches that all human beings since the fall, that's how we classify it, it's when Adam and Eve, the first human beings, they were made in God's image, they rebelled against him, they sinned, and since that moment, every single human being has been born a sinner. They were sinners before they could sin. Psalm 51.5, David says, for I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. (laughs) Not much hope. And if you're a parent, if you're a parent who hasn't been blinded by your own kid's cuteness, right? Then you know this to be true. Have you ever been seriously freaked out by your kid's behavior? Like, just freaked out. Like, a few months back, uh, Javin, my my son, who's seven, wouldn't let his four-year-old daughter 
take her turn on the video game, right? So, sorry, whatever I said. Seven-year-old son, my four-year-old daughter, my four-year-old sister, is that what I said? We get confused sometimes. Okay, whatever. I don't know what I said. But I meant my seven-year-old son and my four-year-old daughter, he would not let her take her turn on the video game. So Zoe did what Zoe did. What'd she do? Well, she blasted him in the head with some makeshift weapon. Now, I don't remember what it was. It was something hard and available at the opportune moment, moment, right? That's all that mattered. Close, bam, lit him up. Javin comes to me, and this is not normal, this is normal, right? Javin comes bawling to me, right? Just bawling his eyes out, Zoe hit me in the head. I look at Zoe, her brother bawling uncontrollably right in front of her. She's like, I say, Zoe, why did you hit my brother? Why did you hit your brother in the head? Why did you hit your brother? She said, he wouldn't let me play Skylanders. It was my turn. No remorse. Cold face killer, right? I think to my head, I'm raising a sociopath. That's what I think immediately, right? Natural born killer. This scares me. She has no remorse. Now, Zoe has never, ever, I promise you, seen me hit another person when it was my turn to play a game, right? I'm at the checkout. Somebody cuts in front of me. I just pick something up. Bam! Never witnessed this. That was in her. That sin. And the Bible says that is how we all start out. Now, some kids are gentler than others, right? But selfishness is universal. And that selfishness actually, listen, selfishness actually separates us from God. See, selfishness by definition is putting my needs and myself above God. A selfish person is ultimately his, his or her own God. Everything he or she does is in service, in worship to themselves. And so God is at odds with them. Romans 5.10 says that we were at one time all enemies, enemies of God. So hopefully now you can start maybe to see the miracle of Christianity kind of coming into focus. How does a person born an enemy of God become a friend of God? How does a person change sides on the battlefield? Scripture tells us this, this happens through a miraculous chain of events. That before you ever heard the name of Jesus, God set his one-way covenantal love on you. He predestined you. He chose you. He said, Justin Dean will be in my family. And then God directed every facet of your life to bring that about. See, I was born an enemy, but my rebellion had an expiration date. One day, and I'll be honest, I have no idea when that was. I was in and out of church so many times growing up, I have no idea when I became a Christian. But one day, God sent the Holy Spirit, it's a third member of the Trinity, God sent the Holy Spirit into my heart and gave me, literally gave me a heart transplant. He removed my heart of stone. He gave me faith to believe in him. He gave me a new heart, a new mind, and then I chose to follow him. 
Now, this is where we see the scandalousness of the gospel. It really comes alive to us. It's really shocking to us that my salvation happened before my choice to follow Jesus. God predestined me, God called, God gave me the faith to believe. Ephesians 2.8 says, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. It's a gift, not a result of works so that no one can boast. That salvation is a gift of God. See, then I responded. He did the work then I responded. He opened my eyes. What do you call that? That's grace. He caused me to believe, and I responded. The reason that I am a Christian, and if you're in this room and you are a Christian, the reason you are a Christian is because of the grace of God. Not because of anything you have ever done, including your choices. Now, why do I spend so much time talking about that? Aren't I just splitting hairs here? What comes first? What, what, what's the big deal? Why does it matter if I think my choice is what saved me rather than God's free and sovereign grace? Here's why. These two versions of what happens when people become Christians produce two very different responses in people. If I believe that God did like 80% of the work, right? But I did the other 20. He did the dying and the heavy lifting, right? But I did the choosing like 80-20. I don't, then listen, I don't actually have a God. I have a partner. I don't actually have a master. I have an associate. And therefore... 80-20, I owe him, but he owes me. We both did our part, right? Partnered together in my own salvation. He owes me a little bit. Now I owe him, this is what it feels like. This is what it feels like. Maybe you, maybe you, might, you might be here. I owe him my future obedience. And he owes me a pleasant life. He can't just, if God's my partner, he can't just ask anything of me. I have certain rights. Hey, I played my part. I chose, I obeyed, I cleaned up my act. I'm a pretty good person. I worked hard, I study your Bible, I read it, I pray. I have certain rights. I'll do this, you do that, you hold up your end of the bargain, things will go well for us. But what happens then? What happens is life happens, right? So if my life doesn't go as planned, I can shake my fist at God and I can get angry with him because he's not upholding his end of the bargain. I think this is where most people who sit in the church week in and week out actually live their lives. I go to church, I pay my tithes, I give, and God keeps me pleasantly middle class. I have rights. But if my kids get sick or I get cancer, my faith fails because God didn't uphold his end of the bargain. And this is where God's free and sovereign grace, listen, it actually gets a little scary if you get it. Because if God has given me 
everything for my salvation, everything, if everything I have ever done or ever accomplished accounts for nothing, if it's sheerly out of grace, there are no limits or no conditions on my obedience to him. He can ask me for anything. He can ask me for anything. He's not my partner. He's my master. Come cancer or a car wreck, anything above hell is a gift of grace. So that's the miracle. If you are a Christian, you are what you are because of the grace of God. Nothing you did. You were an enemy of God, but God turned an enemy into a friend, no strings attached. Salvation is 100% from the Lord. Now, can I ask you, has that settled? <laughs> has that settled yet? Has that dropped the 16 inches or so from your head to your heart? If it hasn't, if the grace of God is still a concept to you and not a heartwarming, tear-producing, joy-creating, life-shaping reality to you, then I, I say to you this morning, ask him for it, beg him for it. Ask him to make it alive. Ask him to set your heart aflame with the grace of God. I spent all this time giving this uber long introduction because it's the only way that we're really going to get, we're really going to understand what Paul is doing in this passage of scripture. The sovereign, free grace of God has got to be on fire in our hearts. Now, with that long introduction, open up to chapter 9, verse 1, and let's get started. If you do not have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. You can download the app, version. You can download Sacred City app onto your phone. We're in chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Now, Paul has just spent all last chapter giving what we call, around most Christians call, the weaker brother principle, okay? And he taught on that, and now like a good pastor and a good shepherd, he's actually going to give good illustrations and show you how to apply it to your life. Look at verse, or chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Now, first off, let me, I want you to hear this. Salvation is a gift of God that brings freedom. Listen, religion... Religion does not bring freedom. Here's what religion, religion brings a cage. Religion brings a list. Many of you think when you hear the word Christian or Christianity, you actually think of religion. You say, here's the list. If you do these things, God will accept you. If you clean up your act, God will invite you in. Every other religion on the planet gives you a list. Do these things, you'll be in with the gods. Christianity gives you a Christ. A savior who's obeyed all the rules, obeyed all the list, and now dies the death that we all deserve to give us, as a gift, his righteousness. And that creates a freedom for the believer. There's freedom in Christ. And Paul, as he's writing this, he's saying, hey, I'm free. I'm not bound by any legalism. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to dance for my dinner. I don't have to do anything to be accepted by God. I'm accepted because of Jesus Christ. Am I not free? Now look, am I not an apostle? 
Hey, what's an apostle? Apostle is someone who has seen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, has been anointed by Jesus, chosen by Jesus to be his mouthpiece, right? That's a big A apostle. We, have, we don't have these anymore, right? They can write scripture. We, don't, we can't do that. We have some little A apostles, you know, gifts, but not big A apostles. He's, he's, kinda, he's kind of giving his credentials here just a little bit. I'm going to show you why. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He saw Jesus resurrected, knocked off his horse, sell him actually three times in the book of Acts. Look at this. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? So this is what he's doing. He's, he's, he's about to lay something on the church. He's like, oh, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? You're proof that I am because this church exists because of me. That's what he's kind of saying. God did it. God saved people, but God used Paul and the planting of this church to bring about the congregation. Paul planted the gospel. God brought the growth, okay? So now look what he's about to say. If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship. Now, back in the day, right, they they couldn't lick the letter, right? They couldn't lick the letter and put the stamp on it. So what they do, they folded the piece of paper over, they, they put the wax on, they pressed their seal, and that was the sign that something was authentic, Okay? Even at the marketplace, when they packaged up fish or they packaged up a package of beans, they would put that seal on it. This is where, how you knew where it came from. Paul's saying, I'm an apostle. I've been chosen by God. I've been, I'm, I'm being used as God's mouthpiece here, and you are my seal. You are proof that God is using me. Okay? That's what he's saying. Keep reading. This is my defense to those who would examine me. So people were kind of challenging him. We know that. Verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Now, Paul was most likely uh, uh, a widow. Is that how you say it for a man, I think? A widow, right? Widower. He was a widower, sorry. He was a widower. Uh, More than likely, uh, just we don't really have too much proof of this, but most people believe because he was part of the Sanhedrin and everything that he you had to have a wife to be a part of that. So his wife probably died. At this moment in time, he has no wife, okay? And he's saying, do I not have the right to bl- bring along a believing wife? Look, as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Kepha. So Jesus' brothers, all right, are married. Jesus' brothers are married and they're in ministry and they're, believe, they're bringing along their wife and their wife doesn't have to work and the ministry is supporting them. And so does Peter. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Do I have to? Paul was a tent maker. That's what he did, like a home builder. Okay, so he's preaching, he's sharing the gospel, he's raising up churches, he's training men, he's doing all this stuff, but then on the side, he's making a living by building tents. Okay? And then, he, then he's, now he's about to use some illustrations. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? If you're in the army, you're not paying for your food. You're in the army, you're not paying for your clothes. The government is supporting you. Right? Who plants a vineyard without any, eating any of its fruit, Right? Or who tends a flock without getting any of the milk? Now listen, what Paul is about to be building up, he's saying, because we are not saved by what we do, we are saved by what Christ has done. We are saved by grace. We are the most free people in all the world. We can eat meat. We cannot eat meat. Why would we not want to eat meat? We could drink good beer or we could drink bush light. It doesn't matter, right? We're 
free. Paul is saying because he is an apostle of God that gives him the right, literally gives him the right to eat what he wants, drink what he wants, bring a Christian wife with him, wife with him in ministry if he wants, and to support themselves through the work of his ministry if he wants. And Paul illustrates this point like a great pastor. He uses the illustration of a soldier, of a vintner, and of a shepherd. And then he proves his point from the Old Testament law in verse 8 and 9. Look at verse 8 and 9. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Now when they would tread grain, to be in a, uh, in a room, they would have a center post, they'd have the oxen mounted to this thing, and the oxen would walk around it like this and would literally smash the grain with their hooves and would tread the grain and separate the grain, right? Now, what God said is when you're working an oxen like that, don't put a muzzle on him. When he's hungry, let him take a nibble, right? Let him eat. And now look what he says. He says, when I wrote that in the law, now this is, some people get really ticked off how Paul uses, interprets this, how he, his hermeneutic on how he um, interprets the Old Testament here. He says, hey, that wasn't just for animals. God's more concerned with human beings. So if a man is working hard, let him get his earning, or let, his, let him earn a living through how he's working. Okay, keep reading. Verse 10. Does he not speak entirely for our sake? So this is what he's saying. Um, when I put that in the Old Testament law that you're not supposed to muzzle an ox, um, I didn't write that for the ox. That's good. Scripture's not, right? It's not for our animals, right? It's for us. We're to read it. We're to understand it. We're to learn principles from it, okay? What is he saying now? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because, look, the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. He's saying, listen, when you work hard for a living, at the end of the day, it, it, your hope is kind of in a paycheck, right? Your hope is kind of to be, to get paid for what you do and to do it well. And that, that's okay. That's okay. It's really exhausting to do a work. And if you don't think you can be paid well for it. Now, here's an example. When I was in high school, um, this is what high schoolers do. It's really bad. I quit a really good job for another job because it paid six cents more an hour. Now, this made sense on paper, right? And I worked at this place called Mycogen Seeds, okay? Mycogen Seeds. And uh, I was going to be rolling. I mean, that six cents really adds up, right? Uh, so I was going to be working, and I get out to this job. My friend had it. He told me, this is the easiest job you've ever had in your life. I'm like, all right, let's do easy. I can do easy. I get out there, and all day long, I'm taking, there's a big pile of corn here, corn. I'm taking these seeds, and I'm counting them. And I'm putting them 20 in a package, seal it up, 20 in a package and seal it up all day long, right? One hour felt like a week, okay? This was the, literally, all, there's 10 of us around a table. I hate my life. I hate my life. I've never contemplated suicide. I am now. Like, it was that bad. But now listen, I, I, I'm pretty sure, um, at the time, I'm pretty sure I was making $4.71 an hour. That was six cents above the minimum wage in the day, okay? Four, is that right? Yeah, $4.71 an hour. Now, I didn't keep that job very long, but how would, if it, how would um, my attitude change if I knew that job was paying me, uh, let's just say what the NFL commissioner makes, 
40 million a year. Okay? What if I'm counting bean or counting corn for 40 million a year? Would that change the way I do my job? <laughs> this is dollars right now. $1, $2, $3. Like that's what I'm thinking, right? I don't care. I'm, this day, it, it flies by because at the end of the week, every month, I, I was just doing the, my, a buddy of mine told me, the, the tithe off of my salary would $333,000 a month. I'm like, I could plant a church with that, all right? That's, so this is what he means. The plowman plows in hope. That ch- hope the, the, the thought in the fu- of what's coming to me in the future changes the way I do a menial task, right? It doesn't change the task. The task is still the same. The time is still the same. I'm still sitting there all day long counting corn, but the paycheck at the end changes things. And Paul, what Paul is really building up is here, hey, if I preach the gospel, if I plant churches, I have a right to get paid for it. And not only just kind of paid, I have a right to get paid well for it, enough that my wife doesn't have to work. I can bring along a believing wife, that I can eat what I want, drink what I want, I don't have to be counting pennies all the time. Paul is building up this argument here. Look at verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless. Now listen, Paul's saying, in the same way, like all the, ag- like all the illustrations he used before, the ag illustrations, in the same way, we have plowed. We have sown the gospel among you, and we should be reaping material things among you. We should be getting paid for that work. You should be taking care of our needs, paying for our food and our family and our drink, so we don't have to work outside the home. We have a, quote-unquote, right to that. Actually, the word is authority in the Greek. We have the authority as a shepherd and as apostle for you to take care of our needs. Now, doesn't that sound like a good old little greedy greedy TV preacher? Right? I sowed spiritual things among you, brother. Put your hands on the TV and send me a check. Right? I pray and I preach. You should pay me and pay me well. Right? Now, that's true. Paul is giving us a principle. And I feel weird preaching this, okay? I feel weird preaching this. I'll just be honest. I'm paid well. Don't worry about it. We've got a financial team that does all that stuff. So that's not why I'm preaching this. I didn't choose this sermon. Like, you know, it, it chose me. It's, we're at 1 Corinthians 9. That's where we're at, okay? So Paul's clearly teaching, here's the principle. Pay missionaries. Pay pastors. Pay them well. They have a right to it. They labor spiritually, but they have a right to be met, their needs met materially, okay? Paul's clearly laying that right down. And it's true, it's a biblical principle for us to follow. We should pay our pastors and pay them well. But Paul knows there is something far more important than his rights to get paid for his preaching. And we're going to see that right here in verse 12. And what verse 12 does, I'm going to tell you, verse 12 lights the fuse for a gospel bomb. After verse 12, Paul is going to use the word gospel eight different times before we get to the end of our passage. So it's literally, he's lighting a fuse and it's going off. Look at verse 12. 
Nevertheless, right now, I'm right in the middle of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. So we have the right to get paid, but we're not using that right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord, that's Jesus, commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather, whoa, he's crazy. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. But if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. What is he saying here? This this is huge. Paul is saying, pastors and preachers have the right to get paid, but I give up my rights. Paul is showing them that the weaker brother principle from chapter 8 is actually just the gospel principle. It's what it looks like when when a person's entire life is shaped by the gospel. I have the right to get paid, but I give up that right. Verse 17, let's keep reading. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What's Paul saying? Stewardship. That's a big word right there. You know what Paul's saying? Everything I have isn't because I have a right to it. It's because God entrusted it to me. And so this is what he's saying. Your job is to pay me well. My job is to steward that well. Everything I've been given is a stewardship. Through the gospel. Now this is, this is where we're going right here. This is kind of tricky. Outside of Christ, we have no rights. Outside of Jesus Christ, the only thing we've earned is hell, as sinners. Nothing good we've ever done is counted for, uh, for us. Everything is filthy rags. Nothing's ever been good enough because our self is always at the center. So we have no rights outside of Jesus Christ, but through the gospel, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, God has given us some rights. But through the gospel... God also gives us the freedom to give up those rights for the sake of the gospel. Now, what? God has given us rights in the gospel. But through the gospel, God has also given us the freedom to give up those rights for the sake of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Listen, any rights that we have in this life right now, our rights haven't come through our earnings. Our rights have come through Jesus Christ's work and effort. We have no rights outside of Jesus, and you can only, you will only be able and empowered to give up your rights if you can see that what you already have in Christ is greater than whatever it is that you're giving up. Look at verse 18. 
that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul, you are confusing. Paul is saying, God has given me rights in the gospel. I have a right to get paid and paid well. That's what Paul's saying. I love it. Paul spends 16 verses building up his rights only so he can give them up. I have a right to get paid. I have a right to have a woman. Brother, I preach, right? I have a right. I have a right. I give up my rights. Right? He's not building up his rights to say, send the check to right here. Right? It's up on the screen. He's building up his rights so he can give up his rights. He's saying, I am free to eat. I am free to drink. I am free to get married. I'm free to make babies all in the same night, right? All in the church's dime if I want to. But there is something more important than my freedoms and my rights. And that is to not make full use of my right in the gospel in order that I can present the unadulterated, unfiltered, unhindered gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying sometimes my rights get in the way of preaching the gospel. And if if my rights get in the way of preaching the gospel, I will take back my rights. I will not make use of my rights. Now listen, here's one example. One way that we apply this principle at Sacred City. It's in our tithes and in our offerings. See, we have the right to pass the offering plate to the basket or the buckets or whatever you want. We have the right to pass the plate every single week. Most churches do, and that is their right. We have bills to be paid. We've got four guys on staff. We pay for this building and our offices. We support church planning. We've got a lot going on. But when I was encountering people in our city, and I was talking to them about Jesus, and I was sharing the gospel with them, I kept hearing, pastors only want my money. The church only wants me for my money. When I come there, and the thing grows, they want to build some huge metropolis, and they want to they just want to use my money. They, all, all they care about is money. Money, money, money. The church is just another business. And if you're, that was a defeater belief. That's called a defeater belief. It's something that a person believes and it stands in front of the gospel. So if I'm sharing the gospel to them and all they think is, oh no, here, here's an, all they think is he wants my money. It's like this. If you, if you are in a, some kind of pyramid scheme. Sorry, that's what they're called. You can, I don't care if it's supplements. I don't care what it is that you're selling. You're telling me that if I take this pill, it'll work, and all I hear is, I want your money. That's all I hear, right? Because I've, I've, I've seen enough of those pyramid schemes to know you're going to be interested in this about three months, and then you're going to be out, right? I will never buy. I, you will never sell me because I have a defeater belief that says all you want is my money. Now, when I was trying to share the gospel with someone, they had the same belief. All they thought I wanted their money, the church wants their money. I couldn't even share the gospel of free grace because they think this ain't free grace. If I come, it's going to cost me my money. Right? So that's a defeater belief that stands in the way. I could never present the gospel of grace to them. Because they thought that the church just wanted their money. So I prayed about it. And I decided, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to pass the plate. So in the two and a half years that Sacred City Church has been in existence, we've taken one offering. One offering. 
And that was when we bought our office, we wanted to outfit our office, so we did something extra, one offering. That's it. Why? Do what? We have the right, like every other church in the city, we have the right to pass the plate every single week. But we have laid down that right because we want to preach the gospel and we don't want you to be hindered by, oh, here comes the, ba- here comes the basket, right? We don't want you to be hindered by that. We don't want you to think that it's dependent upon you giving. I, you know, if I'm going to, you know, Jesus just wants my money. We have the right, but we give up that right in order to serve people better and win more of them with the gospel. We want to remove any potential roadblock that we can. We don't water down the word of God at all. We want to remove any hindrance we possibly can. Now look at verse 19. For, through, for though I am free from all, Gosh, if you've never felt that, can I, I struggle with that. Paul, the apostle, I am free from all. He's saying that who I am in Christ determines my identity, not who, not what everybody else thinks of me. You know, I struggle with that personally. I struggle with, sometimes I do the right thing. My, my missional community pressed in on me this week. Sometimes I do the right thing, not because I'm so uh, aware of the grace of God and I'm so thrilled with, with the gospel and I'm so thrilled with the free grace of God. Sometimes I do the right thing because I want to be the type of person who does the right thing. I want people to look at me and go, boy." I want people to look at me. I want to be the type of person that opens my home and just lets people come in and out and it doesn't really matter to me that I'm just so generous and so benevolent that I want, now I don't really want that. (laughs) Because when you get in my house, you get on my nerves and I have to clean up after you, right? And I have to clean the bathroom wondering, I don't even know whose this is, I'm cleaning up right now, (laughs) right? Like I don't like it. But I want to be the type of person who does that. Do you, know what, do, you, do you see the difference? I'm not being gracious and benevolent because my heart is melted by the grace of God. I am trying to earn an identity. I want to be one of those sacrificial people that opens up their home to the world, right? That's the type of person that I want to be, right? That's wicked, That's idolatry. That's moralism. That's trying to earn an identity when Christ has given me his identity for free. And it all goes back to what do I what do I think happened at salvation? Did God, did I choose God because I'm pretty intelligent? I weighed my options and I chose him. Did I choose Jesus Christ because I don't want to be like those those people over there? I want to be a moral person. I want to be conservative. I want to be clean cut. I want to be whatever. Did I choose Christ because of something I've done? And if I think that I did, or if I believe it in my heart, my life looks different. My motivations for my heart look different for even the same behaviors. See, nobody would look at me and go, being benevolent and opening up your home is a bad thing, Justin, quit that. That's what's so scary about it. Because I can be doing good things with sinful motives and it's building my pride. And I'm actually, my heart's becoming hard to God and to the gospel and no church person is going to tell me to stop.
verse 19, we're about to see just how, how paradoxical the gospel is. Paul says, I'm free. I don't care what you think of me. I don't have to be thought of as a benevolent person. I don't have to be thought of as a moral person. I can eat what I want, drink what I want. It doesn't matter to me. I'm free. I'm accepted in Christ. I've been saved by grace, not because I don't drink, not because I don't eat meat, not because I haven't been remarried. None of those things commend me to God. I've been accepted by God because of Jesus Christ. I'm free of all of you. It doesn't matter what you think of me. But now what does he do with that freedom? Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And that word servant, that's, again, that's from doulos in the Greek, and it's slave. It's not servant, it's slave. I've made myself a slave, and he's playing off the slave metaphor that he used earlier on the book. I made myself a slave to everyone. I'm free! I don't care what anybody thinks! And yet I've made myself their slave. See, this is the gospel. It gives us the rights. We have the, because of the work of Christ, we now, we had no rights, but now we have the rights of children in the family of God. But it also gives us the right and the freedom to lay down those rights. It sets us free, but frees us to be slaves of mankind. And five times, over the next few verses, Paul says that his aim the reason he gives up his rights is to win people. Verse 19, that I might win the more. Verse 20, that I might win the Jews. That I might win those under the law. That I might win those who are without the law. Verse 22, that I might win the weak. Paul says, I lay down my rights so I can win more people, so that I can share the gospel with more people, so that things don't get in the way between me sharing the gospel and them coming to faith in Jesus Christ. This is what a good missionary does. And this, I pray, is what Sacred City looks like, or would look like, or should look like. We should be so enamored and so excited about all of the freedoms and rights that our benevolent God has given us, who we, us, who were once his enemies in the gospel, have been given such riches that when an opportunity arises where we can give up one of those rights for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our neighbor, for the sake of our coworker, we gladly and joyfully lay down our rights and give up our rights so that we might win them. Now, Casey's already quoted Martin Luther this morning. Let's, let's stick with that. Let's quote Martin Luther again. <clears throat> From this book, The Freedom of the Christian. If you could put that quote up here on the screen for me. <clears throat> this is what he says. Although I am an unworthy and condemned man, my God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part, out of pure free mercy, so that from now on, I need nothing except faith which believes that it is true. So first off, do you hear that? If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, 
It takes nothing from you but faith to believe that it's true. And here's the deal. You don't even get that on your own. Ephesians 2.8 says he gives us the faith to believe. It's a gift of God. So if you believe that this morning, that's a gift from God. I challenge you to believe it this morning. That's what it means to be accepted by God. You believe that Christ paid the price and that Christ made it happen. Keep reading. Why should I not therefore, so this is because that has happened, because God has saved me by sheer grace, why therefore, or why should I not therefore freely, joyfully, with all my heart and with an eager will, do all things which I know are pleasing and acceptable to such a father who has overwhelmed me with his inestimable riches. I will therefore give myself as a Christ to my neighbor, just as Christ offered himself to me. I will do nothing in this life except what I see as necessary profitable and salutary to my neighbor since through faith I have an abundance of all good things in Christ. Now, think about this. Think about this until it melts your heart. Jesus Christ was the Son of God. So that meant he had every right given to the king of the universe, right? He had the right to be worshipped. He had the right to be well-fed and drink great wine and to be well-dressed and to live his life lavishly and in excess and in comfort. He had the right to live like a God among men. Why did he show up in Jerusalem? Why did he show up in Nazareth? He could have been born in Cancun. But Jesus, being so full of the grace of God, so content in his relationship with the Father, gave up all these rights. Do you see this? Jesus, the Son of God, who had all the rights, gave up these rights in order to confer upon us his rights as God's children. That Jesus was despised and rejected. He was poor and pitiable. And eventually he was killed by being crucified. And he did it all. He gave up all his rights to give us his rights as sons and daughters. Philippians 2 says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then John 1, 2 and 3 says, but to all who did receive him, but to all who believe in him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We We didn't do it. God did it. And this is the amazing truth. If you've, if you've ever read, let me see, what, where am I at here? If you've ever read C.S. Lewis, 
The Lion, The Witch, and the Wardrobe. I just got finished, done finished reading it again with my kids. And this is the amazing truth that, got, that, that Lewis was trying to kind of illustrate between Edmund and Aslan. If you know, Edmund's a little snot, okay? Edmund is a little snot. He's a little tattletale. He, he just, he, he's just not a kind kid. He's jealous. He wants it all to be all. And he finds his way into Narnia, and he runs into this, the, print, the queen of Narnia, and she tricks him, and she gives him his favorite dessert, right? Turkish delight, and he gobbles it all up, and it's basically enchanted. And, was, and, what, and basically, it, it, it helps him believe that, that it's a sin. It helps him, him believe in her. He's on her side. And eventually, she, he betrays his family. He betrays his sister. He betrays everyone. He goes to the queen, and he, he basically uh, chooses to be on the queen's side, and he betrays Aslan. And Aslan, in the, in, the, in the story, is a beautiful lion, right? He's gorgeous, he's beautiful, uh, he's kind, but he's not safe. Brilliant. And, and Aslan, who's never done anything wrong, Aslan, who's the protector of Narnia, Aslan, who knows, who's kind of sang Narnia into existence, there comes a time in the, in the end of the story where Edmund is going to be killed by the queen because he followed her because he ate the Turkish delight. She has a right to him. She has a right, according to the law of Narnia, she has a right to death. It was a blood feud. She has a right to blood. She has a right to payment. He's my slave. I have a right to him. I could kill him. And in the story, it's, it's, just, it's poignant, it's beautiful, that Aslan takes the queen to the side, and they're talking, you don't really know what's going on, but Aslan is working out a deal. And he's saying, he's saying, would you take my life for this little snot-nosed Edmund? Right? That's what he's saying. You don't really know it until the end when Aslan, this beautiful lion, allows her to mock him, allows her to tie him to a stone, allows her to shave the, the, his mane off, to shave him, to ridicule him. And ultimately, as the little girls watch, ultimately, they kill him. And it's one of my favorite parts in all the movie because my kids are like, no, not Aslan. Why'd he do it? And there's this line in there that, they, that, that Lewis puts in there that Aslan knew a deeper magic. Aslan knew something deeper than what everyone else thought. He knew that his own death, that he could defeat death and he could come back to life and he could overthrow the queen's power. And by laying his life down as a sacrifice and he could give his life back, he could set Narnia free and he could set Edmund free from that selfishness that kind of, was ruining his life. And that's exactly what happens. Aslan comes back to life, saves the day. And that's, what, that's what's going on in the gospel. We're that selfish little snot-nosed Edmund. And we deserve the wrath of God. We're enemies of God. God listen, if, you, if you're in this room and you're like, this guy's calling me an enemy and I'm sick and tired of it. Listen, I'm a preacher. And everybody else's imagination, like, I should be, like, on God's A-team, okay? Like, I'm a preacher. I'm not, there's no echelon here, but I'm a, I'm, I was an enemy of God. Like, 
me. So if you think like preachers are up here and normal people, no, no, no. I was an enemy of God. I'm, I'm including myself in that. But Jesus Christ, like Aslan, laid himself on the stone, laid himself on the cross to take my punishment, to set me free from my sin and my own selfishness. And when we think about that and we meditate on that, it changes our hearts into that type of people. That's what, Lu or that's what Luther is saying when he says, become a Christ to your neighbor. Become a because it's happened to you, become the type of people who lay aside your rights to share the gospel with another. You lay aside your rights to serve another. You're willing to climb up, up on the stone and lay your life. You're willing to climb up on the cross. What did Jesus say when he, what did he mean when he said, pick up your cross daily and follow me? If God, who had every right to destroy us as we were his enemies, but he gave up that right by giving us grace and sending his own son who gave up his rights to save us, how could we not be people who freely give up our rights to love one another and win others to Jesus Christ? The, the story of, you know, in, in the line of witch and wardrobe, it would not work if Edmund went, if Edmund would have saw Aslan on the stone, Aslan's dead, he's like, sucker. And he went away being a little snot the rest of his life. A little selfish snot the rest of his life. No, that sacrificial love, seeing the sacrifice, seeing the cost that it took to set him free from his sin, seeing it on the table, set him free. It changed him forever. Edmund was never the same again. Edmund was never the same. Sacrificial love changed him in the moment. Changed him into a valiant man. Changed him into an honorable man. Changed him into a man who would later sacrifice himself for others. That's what the gospel does for us. That's what it means to be a Christian. The sacrifice of Christ has changed you so much that now you have all these rights, but you can lay them aside. At any moment, you can lay it aside to serve another. And I'm going to tell you, here's the stark reality. Many of us are religious, but we're not Christian. If you aren't giving up your rights freely on a weekly basis, I'm just going to say weekly, just to put a time frame in there so you don't just think, oh yeah, that one time six months ago, that guy counts. On a weekly, on a daily basis, that we're not laying aside our rights you probably don't get the gospel. It hasn't went from here to here. Your heart hasn't been set aflame by the grace of God. Maybe you still think it was 80-20. And you've got God as your partner. You owe him and he owes you. You just stay away from the big sins and he'll keep your life nice and middle class. That's religion. Listen, to be a Christian means to be changed by God. We see the sacrifice and our heart is set so aflame that he could ask anything of us and we could say, how could I refuse you? How could I, how could I refuse you? Money, family, friends, work, how could I refuse you? I heard a great story from one of my mentors 
about a guy who was selling cars, and he, he was one of the upper guys in the, I think he might have owned it, he owned a used car dealership, and he, was, he started hearing the gospel, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he started do, running the numbers, and he realized that if you were white and upper class, you would typically, white upper class men would negotiate, would haggle, would barter, and they would get the best deal. And it would go down from there. Women, would get, women wouldn't get a, as good of a deal. Um, minorities would get the worst deal. And actually, minority females would get the absolute worst deal. The minority females were getting ripped off. And he, and he came to believe the gospel that God gave him grace and God sacrificed for him. And he realized, this isn't just. This is an unjust system. I'm benefiting off of the poor and the outcasts. I'm benefiting off single mothers. I, I can no longer do this. So he instituted a flat rate. The gospel changed his pocketbook. He's going to make less money now. It changed him in such a way that he said, I can't do this. That's unjust. So now the price on the car is the price on the car. If you're white, if you're black, if you're a woman, if you're male, doesn't matter. The price on the car is the price on the car. The gospel affected the way he does business. Can I ask you? This is just some diagnostic questions. When was the last time you sacrificed? When was the last time you gave up your rights for someone else? When was the last time you, you, you put down the drink and you walked across the yard and you talked to the neighbor after your long day? When was the last time you turned off the game and you called the friend or when was the last time you made the dinner for somebody in your missional community who's struggling when was the last time you wrote the check to pay off somebody's debt if that's like shocking to you like, I would do that you don't get the gospel how could God write off your debt and you be like thanks for that I'm, I'm not going to do the same you don't get it it's not, it's, maybe it's here, but it's not here. Your heart's not a flame. God gives you things as a steward to give them away. I love it. When, and we're going to spend a little bit more time on this next week. Because Paul says, to the weak, I became weak. When was the last time you were weak with someone? Because religious people, when somebody shares their weakness, I'm struggling with this and this, the religious person goes, oh, let me tell you how to fix that. Oh, I, I used to be like that when I was like 15. Yeah, that happened to me once too. And uh, then I just prayed and I got over it. So go pray and you'll get over it. Oh, you know what? All you got to do, here's the Bible verse. Go, go read this, quote this three times a day. You'll be fine. See, to the weak, I'm strong. Oh, yeah, you struggle with that? Yeah, some, when you're young in the faith, that kind of happens sometimes. Here's a book. See, to the weak, I'm strong. That's what 80-20 Christian does. Yeah, one day I just decided I'm tired of this old life. I was drinking 12 beers a day, but now I decided, hey, today's the day, it's over, it's done. I'm cleaning up. That's all you got to do? You're struggling? Oh, well, just do that. Make a decision. Draw a line in the sand. Yep, put it in your calendar. Make a to-do list. Get it done. All right? To the weak, I'm strong. Paul says, no, 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 no. To the weak, I'm weak. Yeah. 
I struggle with that too. Yep, I doubt the goodness of God too. Yep, I doubt the grace of God too. Yep, I try to earn God's love too. Yep, that's really, really difficult. Would you like to be in a community of people who know it's really, really difficult, but we're still fighting faith? Weak becomes weak. This is what a missionary does. Listen, I invite you this morning, if you've never known a God who gives grace, come and feast this morning. As the believers come and feast on the body and the blood of Christ at at the Lord's Supper here, I encourage you not to feast on this, but to feast on Christ. Take him in, believe him. Believe him this morning. Let him fill your soul as this food and drink fills our stomach. Let his, his grace fill your soul this morning. And no freedom. Freedom that you can't find anywhere else. Freedom that allows us to give up our rights. It's amazing. Let me pray. Father, you are gracious and good and great and glorious. And none of us can compare. And... We stand in your presence like snot-nosed Edmund this morning, not deserving. And I pray, Father, like Edmund, you would give us a glimpse of the stone table, that you would give us a glimpse of the cross, you would give us a glimpse of our Savior upon it, that our sin that put him there, and you would take that into our heart and just explode it. And it takes nothing but the faith to believe it's true. And the repercussions of that change everything. So would you do that in the lives of people this morning, even us who are believers, but we struggle to believe it, that our problem isn't obedience, our problem is faith to believe it. Help us believe that we're saved by grace. Help us believe that you are a gracious God. And as we, as believers, take the Lord's Supper, would you communicate that grace to us? Could we participate in the blood of Christ like uh, the later chapters of Corinthians tell us happens when we come to the Lord's table? Would you communicate that grace to us in a special way this, this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.